15,000% inflation, men wearing women's dresses and marrying prostitutes, rampant migration and the devaluing of citizenship, central power crumbling. It's not America in 2024. It's actually the Roman West in its third century. How does it relate to today? How can we solve the crisis? And how do we move forward? All this and more. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Create Your Own Life show. I am your host, Jeremy Ryan Slate, the CEO and founder of Command Your Brand. We help our clients to combat cancel culture by placing them on the right podcasts and new media. You can grab our new PR book, recently ranked number one on Amazon over at bestpodcastbook.com. Also, if you're brand new to this channel, don't forget to like this video, leave us a comment to tell us what you think, and smash that subscribe button if you support liberty, freedom, and want to build a better future. So we're going to do a little bit... Uh, of more of a teaching monologue type episode today. Um, I guess just full disclosure, those of you that may not know this about me, um, my master's degree is actually in the Roman Empire. So I felt very relevant as of recently, as everyone's been talking about why do men think about the Roman Empire? And I want to read you guys um, a post to kind of cue you into to what I'm thinking about today um, that I wrote recently. I, I just did an episode um, on the James Altucher show where I was on talking about, you know, why do men think about the Roman Empire all the time? So that's going to be linked up in the show notes. I definitely recommend you check that one out. It's a very interesting episode where James and I talk for an hour and 15 minutes about everything you need to know. But here's a post that I wrote recently. Um, do men really think about the Roman Empire all day? For me, the simple answer is yes. It didn't start there and it didn't, uh, it didn't start there. It didn't start for there. It didn't start there for me. Okay, there. I can get my words straight. Uh, for me, it was an extreme fascination with Alexander the Great, but from the perspective of, I feel like I've been there before, or I remember that guy. It's always called to me. I came to Rome because I read an article about Augustus and Alexander that led me to what I studied in grad school, the propaganda of ruler worship. You'd be surprised. Modern politics is much of the same. So why do men think about it so often? A few reasons. The first is, and uh, from the most famous living historian and one of the main sources of my grad thesis, Dr. Mary Beard, men feel the need to be macho, and that's that they've been lost in today's society. So expanding on this, and these aren't Dr. Beard's words, these are mine, corporate jobs have emasculated men, they lack purpose, and the dream of a time when they could do manly things. If you look at how we embrace... Uh, if you look at the lack of purpose and the dream of a time where they could do mainly things, okay, cool. If you look at how we embrace sport, to play sport is to conquer. And that's the only place where men now have to do that. My opinion is a little more of a late stage empire thing. America feels like it's fracturing, there's less opportunity, and surprisingly, less upward mobility, unless you're an entrepreneur. Two of the greatest Roman emperors, Diocletian and Hadrian, grew up poor in the Roman provinces. Funny enough, we're suffering from much of the same now that Rome was in the third century, crushing inflation, immigration gone wild, and social discontent. So this was a post that um, I wrote recently on Facebook about the episode I did with James, um, and I apologize for the stumbles there. When I'm reading these things, my screen's over there, and they are like really small, and I think it's time to get my contacts checked. I haven't had my prescription checked in about 10 or 15 years. Um, but anyway, I think it's it feels very similar, like a, a very late stage empire time. So I want to go over today some of the parallels. I want to go over some of some background on Rome, and 
A lot of this stuff I am able to do from memory. If there are any mistakes, you are a historian out there, do let me know. I am always trying to make sure these things match up as, as a historian myself, I care. So shoot me an email, jrs at jeremyryanslate.com. If you see anything that has missed, um, you have an opinion, you want to jump into this conversation, but I want to do a little bit more of a monologue around how Rome relates to what we're dealing with today. So let's start with a brief timeline. Rome's founded in 753, and there are seven traditional kings of Rome, the first being Romulus, who uh, him and his brother Remus were supposedly raised by a she-wolf. Now, if you understand what that means in modern times, the she-wolf means they were probably actually just raised by a prostitute. It wasn't actually a wolf, but they were probably raised by a prostitute. Him and his brother have a fight, so Romulus then kills Remus, and he goes and fil- founds the town of Rome. Rome early on, they don't really have any citizens. So he goes out and he finds like all these like criminals and kind of misfits and outcasts. And he's like, so you guys want to have a city? Let's build a city together. So the original city of Rome is basically just Romulus and a bunch of men. So there's something that happens and it's a little bit rough. So I apologize uh, for the wording of what it's called. And, uh, you know, it does sound a bit terrible, but there's this action called the rape of the Sabine women. So basically what happens is there's the Sabines are nearby people. They're invited to a dinner in Rome and the Roman men capture all the women at dinner. And now that's how they populate their city. Kind of a rough way to build a city. Um, and, but that's historically, well, not historically, allegedly, you know, through legend, how Rome was built. So Romulus is the first of seven Kings. The final King, um, ends in 509 and it's when the Roman Republic starts. And the Romans and the Greeks often fight about, well, who had democracy first? So Rome says 509, Greece says 508. So they both fight about who did it first. The guy that actually ends up killing the final Roman king, interestingly enough, and this will be important later on, um, his name is Brutus. So Brutus are always seen as the king killers because to, to have a king in Rome was like super offensive. And that's why... When Caesar does what he does later on, it's really offensive to people, and he's killed by a guy named um, Brutus. So if our seven kings are done, then we start the Roman Republic. So the Republic is a um, – it's not quite what we think of as we have a republic. Our republic is actually like three forms of government combined. If you took a direct democracy, a republic, and a monarchy and combined them, that's actually what America is. So we, we are a republic, but not exactly in the terms of what a republic is. So the Roman Republic starts in 509, and it lasts until 31. The last 100 years of the Republic are rough. And you have it starts with a lot of like populist uprising and populist sentiment. There's these two brothers, the Gracchi brothers, Gaius Gracchus and Tiberius Gracchus. And, and what they're trying to do is like basically get what the people want, because government had become very suppressive and was pushing people around. And the Senate was doing whatever it wanted, and the consuls were just being named. The consuls were like the two guys in charge of the city. So they kind of felt like they weren't getting any attention. These two Gracchus brothers eventually killed um, in, you know, I believe one of them was actually by the leg of a stool in the Senate building. Anyway, so the Gracchus brothers die. Then not long after that, there's a general named Gaius Marius. He raises an army, marches on Rome and says, hey, I'm in charge of Rome now. Not long after that, you have uh, Lucas Cornelius Sulla who then raises an army, marches on Rome, says, I'm in charge now. So the last hundred years are like really tumultuous. And then in 43 is when Caesar crosses the Rubicon. Rubicon is a, a city in Italy, not far outside of Rome. And the Tiber is actually in Rome. The Rubicon is a river 
way outside of Rome. So Caesar conquer, uh, crosses the Rubicon with troops, and he marches on liberty on, on Rome and declares himself dictator for life. So it's important to understand what the Roman office of dictator meant. So a dictator was a Roman office, and the Romans had this idea that it was really hard for a bunch of people to agree on a situation to solve a really important one. Like, let's say you're being attacked by a foreign enemy or, you know, there's a plague. They had this idea that really to have all these people agree, you couldn't solve a big situation like that. So they had an office called the dictator where one man would hold power for six months and it was absolute power. Solve a situation, he put the office down. And there's this legend of this guy named Cincinnatus and Cincinnatus is... The person who takes the office of dictator, he fights a battle, fights off the enemy, lays down the office, and then goes back to farming. That's why George Washington was always called the American Cincinnatus, because basically he lays down his army after the revolution. He didn't want to be president. He was kind of pushed into doing that because he's like, well, I guess nobody else is going to do it. I guess I got to do it. So that's why dictator um, is an important office to understand. So Caesar named uh, Julius Caesar names himself dictator for life. Basically, he's going to have this office for life, which you're only supposed to have for six months. This gets people really freaked out, and Caesar's murdered by another guy named Brutus and a guy named Cassius, and that's why the Brutus clan, the the, the Bruti, are, are often known as the clan of of kingslayers in that way. So now we have this power vacuum because Caesar had grabbed a lot of the wheels of power and a lot of the rich people were supporting him because they did like the fact that he was giving them things and giving him positions and money and, and things like that. So there's this power vacuum. And Rome had this really weird system of adoption. You could be a full adult and be adopted by somebody. And what that basically meant is you would give them your name, your titles, your power, your money, your offices. You could give them all to that person. So. When Caesar dies, one of his commanders, a guy named Marcus Antonius, we know him as Mark Antony, says, well, if he dies, I guess I'm the next guy in power, right? That's, that's the, the guy who should be taking over. But then in his, in his will, Caesar adopts this guy named Gaius Octavius. Gaius Octavius would later be known as Augustus Caesar. So then we have this civil war then that happens from the early 40s until 31, so like around 10 years between Mark Antony and Augustus for who's going to really be in charge here. We had this final battle in uh, eastern Greece in a city called Actium, where it's a naval battle and Augustus comes in with ships, takes over the area. Mark Antony at that point in time is with um, Cleopatra, interesting enough, who had also married Caesar and had uh, had a child with Caesar. With Caesar. Um, so Mark Antony and Cleopatra run away. Mark Antony eventually dies. Cleopatra is captured by Augustus and is paraded in what's called a triumph. So when a Roman general won a battle, they would have a triumph. It was a big parade through the city where they would, they would bring in slaves. They would bring in captured people. They would bring in the gold and silver they had won. And I don't know what happens to Cleopatra after this time period. I know she dies not long after that, but I don't know historically other than the triumph of how she's relevant to the situation. So after that, Augustus says, um, and you have to think of the Roman people during this time, they're really beat up. They've experienced war for about 100 years because the Gracchi brothers are around 130. So about 100 years of war. Things are really dangerous. They're really not feeling so great. And 
Augustus wants to be in control, but he kind of plays this uh, um, reverse psychology trip on people because he knows they're like they're feeling really beat up and really brutalized. So he says, ah, I will lay down the power of dictator. And the people are like, no, 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 no. We want a dictator. We want a dictator. Please stay here. And Caesar looks at it. You know, Augustus Caesar looks at it. He's not Augustus yet. He's still Gaius Octavius Caesar because since he gets his adopted father's last name. And he says, fine, I will take control, but I will not have a name like dictator. So he's given the name first citizen. And the Senate actually gives him the name Augustus, which is actually more of a religious title. So now he's Augustus, the first citizen of Rome, which is essentially a dictator, but he's the new guy in control. So that's the end of the Republic and the beginning of the empire. The empire starts with the first Roman emperor, which is um, Augustus, but he does not call himself an emperor because he doesn't want to have that title because once again, Romans do not like the idea of kingship. They're, they're very um, opposed to that. Let me get some coffee here. Hope you guys are finding this interesting. Um, for most of this, I'm not reading notes. This is just how my brain works. <laughs> um, so we have the first emperor, which is Augustus, and he actually reigns for a really long time. Um, around 50 years. And the reason that's important is because by the time he dies, nobody remembers what it was like to live in a republic. They only remember the empire. And it's interesting because the empire, like people would have thought of it as this is still the republic, right? But we look at it historically, we call it the empire because we see how it's different. They didn't really see the differences. They just saw, oh, there's this guy named First Citizen and he's helping us with these things. Later, he that title will be taken as imperator or emperor. Um, we will we will see that later on. It starts being used. Augustus was not somebody that liked to use that title because he really didn't live in opulence. He was more a simple guy, lived a very simple diet, and uh, because he didn't want people to hate him because of you know kind of wearing purple and doing this. The the main Ro god of Rome was was a, was a guy named Jupiter Optimus Maximus, and he was associated with purple. So to wear purple is to be like. I'm like God. And he didn't want to like create that connotation for people, though he is the one that created the Roman worship cult, a lot of the propaganda he used. I can do another episode on propaganda in, in early Rome if you guys want to know about that. Anyway, but this sets it up, right? So then Rome then lasts until in the West, 476, and in the East, 1453, when the Ottomans uh, basically end the Eastern Roman Empire, which becomes the Byzantine Empire. So that's the kind of history and background of Rome, just so you guys kind of have what understands there. So where does the decline start? Where does the actual like decline start and where do things get a little bit crazy? So we have the first few emperors, Augustus being the first, and it was generally like, you know, here's my son or here's my adopted son. This is the guy in control. And then we have um, in the mid 100s, we have what are known as the five good emperors. And these are guys that are all reign for about 20 years. And what would happened is emperors started picking, well, of my relatives, who's the most capable? It, can't, it ended up being not like a direct line because you have a few crazy people in there, one being Nero, um, another being Caligula. Caligula in Latin means little boot, interestingly enough. And the Praetorian Guard looked at this and they're like, well, emperors, we got to think about this a little bit differently. The Praetorian Guard ended up becoming like the keeper of the, of the office of emperor. So it was still was hereditary to a certain point, but they would pick the most capable person. So you have these five really good emperors. The last of these, we know him by his meditations, um, is Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius names his son Commodus co-emperor when he's 17 in hopes that basically 
you know, we can take and he'll learn next to me. He'll do what I'm doing and he'll help me kind of set things up. Commodus ends up being nuts. Um, he's killing people in the arena. He's fighting wild beasts, but he's doing it from a platform because he's kind of a wimp and he doesn't want to actually put himself at threat. So he just becomes very crazy and paranoid about everyone around him. So the Praetorian Guard actually eventually has him killed. And that creates a kind of a new era in Rome. And what happens is there's this power vacuum. So this is around, I'm trying to remember this off top hand, it's around the year 200. I think, I think Commodus dies around 220. So, so we're around the year 200, basically because you have 31 is 31 BC, then we have year zero, and then we're kind of going, we were, we were counting down when we started this, now we're counting up. So it's around the year 200, because I think um, he takes power around 180 or something like that. Once again, I, you can't, I don't know that he's direct dates offhand. There's some of these things that I know exactly, um, but some of this I'm doing from memory. So from there, there's a series of very weak emperors. Most of them are like, uh, fathers that are naming their son emperor and things like that. Like one of them in that line is, is Caracalla, um, who's named emperor by actually a pretty good emperor, which is Septimus Servius, who serves for about 20 years. He names his son Caracalla. Once again, nuts, has his own brother killed, eventually has his own mother killed. And so this the, the 200s are like really kind of crazy. So this ends up being called Rome's crisis of the third century. And you end up having a lot of like, upheaval in this time. And the final emperor that kind of makes the military really angry is this guy named Elagabalus. And you heard in the introduction, I talked about this, but Elagabalus, um, he basically was from this worship cult. Um, the, I think it was the, the, the cult of Elagabalus is where he gets his name from. And it was basically the worship of this black rock. And he would wear like dresses and he married a, a vestal virgin and he married a prostitute. He did all sorts of weird things. And it really got people upset because they're like, this is the guy in charge. Like he's marrying a prostitute. He's marrying a vestal virgin. And he's telling us his rock is getting married to another rock and we all have to come to the wedding. So eventually he dies and there's a series of military leaders in Rome. And at one period of time, we have what's called the year, um, the year of, there's a year of five emperors. There's also a year of six emperors. But basically a general would raise an army, attack Rome and say, I'm emperor. And he'd be emperor for like, a couple months, and then we'd have another one comes in, attacks Rome, I'm emperor. So the second century is really rough. And what ends up happening is in order to keep these guys happy, the emperors realize, you know, once again, they're ruling for a short period of time, but they're realizing their power comes directly from the military. So the way that they can keep them happy is by raising military. So they keep debasing the currency, debasing the currency, debasing the currency in order to pay the military because they would give them 30% raise, 60% raise because their power came from their military power, right? Because raise an army, attack the city, I'm in charge. Raise an army, attack the city, I'm in charge. So we have this really big hyperinflation problem that starts to at one point, there was about 15,000% hyperinflation. It's just not a good scene. There's also a huge immigration problem too. We mentioned Caracalla, one of the crazy guys. In 212, he passes what's known as the Edict of Caracalla, where all people living, not just in Rome, but also in the provinces are named citizens of Rome. And Roman citizenship was very valuable. You used to have to serve in the, you had to be either born into it or serve in the military in order to get it. And then after your military service, like your wife would be a citizen, your kids would be citizens, your 
um, descendants would be citizens, but it lost a lot of value because you basically it entitled you to a lot of different things, political power, the grain dole. There were a lot of things that the, the, the idea of being a citizen um, gave to you. So the idea of citizenship lost a ton of value after 212. So we have this problem that happens. And are these problems sounding very similar to you guys of, of what we're experiencing today? Hyperinflation, citizenship and, and immigration issues. And there's also this problem of, of military service too. And, and, the, and the empire this time, you have to think it is huge. So there's this problem of centralized power failing, right? Like they, they had to go all the way from Rome to Britain to the Middle East. And you had one, one guy that was basically in charge of this. It was just too big. So these are three problems that Rome faced in the third century. Very similar to what we're facing now. Hyperinflation, con central control issues, and um, immigration issues. So in 284, another general raises an army and attacks Rome, and his name is Diocletian. And the interesting thing about Diocletian is he reigns for a long period of time, and he doesn't die in office and isn't killed in office. He retires. He says, solve what I need to solve. I'm out, guys. I'm going to go farm. Diocletian does these really famous reforms. And the reason I, I mention this is because after these reforms, he takes in 284. I think most of these take place by 301. Rome lasts till 476. So there, there, he creates a lot more period of time for Rome to last. So the reason I bring this up is we're experiencing a lot of this now. It's actually not as bad as what they saw in Rome. So the right reforms and the right things could solve this. So I'm going to go through these one by one and, and kind of look at what we can do here. So the first reform, and there's a lot more smaller reforms like taxation and stuff like that. I don't want to get into kind of the intricacies here. I'm just going over the main points here. The first is currency reform. So Diocletian brings back the idea of hard currency, and he introduces a new silver coin, and he standardizes the gold coin, which would be standardized even more because it still would lose some value because of these inflation issues. It's standardized even more in 310 by Constantine, so Constantine has more to do with the soleus, um, which is the main gold coin. But he institutes a new silver coin, and uh, this silver coin is called the Argentius, and this actually helps to make like a smaller currency people can use and slow things down. So he actually puts people back on hard currency. So that handles a big problem. That's if we were to put America back on a gold standard, it would be painful for a little bit, but it would standardize a lot of what we're doing because they wouldn't be able to borrow money that didn't exist. Rome had this exact same problem. The second thing is he takes a look at how he, he doesn't really do much about citizenship, which is interesting. He just adds taxation for, for everyone which to a certain degree, I guess, is fair. Like not everybody in the provinces was taxed the same as everyone at Rome, which makes sense. If you have citizenship, you should pay for it. So that's one thing he does. But he also takes the military because he's more of a conservative and puts them back to, well, this is how the military used to function, right? Like this is what our, um, you know, how marches used to be. This is how units used to be put together. This is how they used to be managed. So this kind of handles this idea of, Raising an army and attacking Rome, raising an army and attacking Rome. He he puts in more standard military management, and then he puts them in different places around the empire to kind of stabilize the empire in that way. It's kind of like a national guard, I guess you could say, is what he does. Rather than a, a centralized army, he decentralizes it and makes it more like a natural national guard. The other thing he does, which is interesting because America actually has this built in, but we are not using it the way we're supposed to, is he institutes something called the Tetrarchy. 
So a tetrarchy means the rule by four. Rome was ruled by one emperor up until this point in time. And we there were co-emperors here and there. Like we mentioned, Marcus Aurelius having his son Commodus as a co-emperor. He had actually, Aurelius had been a co-emperor with his brother for a bit. So like there was spots here and there where there were co-emperors, but it wasn't really a standard thing. Um, Constantine um, is, is one of the last to actually reign over it for a period of time, reign over a combined Roman Empire. And the final is Justinian, but there really isn't anything left at, at that point in time because it's after 476. Um, anyway, so he instituted this, this tetrarchy. And basically, there's two big rulers, one in the east and one in the west. And these big rulers are called Augustuses. And they each have like a, a junior ruler named a Caesar. So there's two Augustuses and two Caesars. And what he then does is he puts somebody else in the West. The West is where Rome is. And he actually moves to the East. He moves to a city, um, which we're not at Constantinople yet because Constantine's not till 310, which is 10 years after this. He moves to a city called Nicomedia, which is um, in the East towards like towards Syria, towards Damascus over that way. Um, it's, I think it would be in modern day Turkey. I'd have to look at a map offhand, but he moves to a city called Nicomedia. And that's where he rules in the East. It was always interesting to go to the East because there was more wealth in the East. That's how, how things were seen. And that's why even Alexander the Great went East, you know, to conquer because there was, there was seen as more money in the East. The reason I say that America has this built in is America's first form of government was the Articles of Confederation, right? A bunch of loose cities that cooperated sometimes. And then we, after we kind of look at federalism and anti-federalism, we come up with this central government but each of the states having power. And so we don't have the same problem here in the US, but what's happened is a lot of state governments have given away their power to the central government. So if we actually just start ruling by the constitution and ruling by the 10th amendment, this stops being a problem here. So this is actually a big one that we already have the solution to, we just gotta hold the line on. So if you get standard currency, if you handle immigration, if you handle, I don't know that we have as much of a military problem, um, because we do really have National Guard here, but if you if you handle currency, if you handle immigration, if you handle you know the too much centralization of power, that can stabilize the country and that can fix a lot of things. And that's why I think whoever takes office first next, you know, I think Donald Trump is the best solution here. They have the ability to be like the American Diocletian and, and add a bit of you know, stability here. And, and that could really save things. So that's the, the, the viewpoint I wanted to bring in is I don't exactly agree with Diocletian's price controls and things like that he did, because that's, that's not really how um, our economy works. But at the same time, this is a thousand years ago. So the economy was different. But I think if we could really handle these things, we could handle our country. And I don't think this has to be, you know, the decline and fall of America. I think this could be, you know, the the birth of, you know, the next several hundred years of prosperity because Rome falls in 410 only because it had been repeatedly attacked by um, barbarian tribes. And in 410, it falls in 476, but in 410 is when Alaric, the Visigoth, attacks Rome and then Rome pays what's called tributes. They paid him money every year to like, stop attacking us. We'll give you some money. Just please stop. If they hadn't done that, like they're not having that money being taken out of the treasury. And I know Christianity will also have a, a play on this later on as well, because now um, it's just another way that money's being diverted. But if that doesn't happen, Rome could have survived and Rome could have lasted. So I think if we can reform here, if we can get back to 
a lot of what we already have in writing in the Constitution, we can save things. So I wanted to bring this up to you guys. I want to give you food for thought. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Is Donald Trump an American Diocletian? How could this be? Um, so thank you guys for hanging out today. I hope you enjoyed this. Once again, like this video, leave us a comment, so, you know, smash that subscribe button if you support liberty, freedom, want to build a better future, and uh, I'll catch you guys next time.